Hi, welcome to the podcast. You know what? Better check your blood pressure because we got vaccine rollout news. But maybe we've got the cure. Maybe it's just a little GNR we need. Let's get to it. Hi, how are you? How's your blood pressure? How you doing? You feeling okay? Just want to take your pulse there. Just check it. Just see how you're feeling. Let me ask a couple of questions here. Where are the doses? Who gets them next? Are we getting the vaccine? Now check your pulse again. Oh, blood pressure's gone up a little bit, hasn't it? Hasn't it? This is now going to be the defining question that we're just going to be asking again and again especially amid worries of a new variant. It doesn't matter whether you got the U.K. variant, the South African variant, the Brazilian variant. Everybody's got a variant, and it's more contagious, and, of course, the worry is there, and so the drumbeat is on. Where, where is the vaccine? And here again is where I like to do something that I, I do quite a bit. And that is, I consult the poets. You know, I I care what the poets are saying. I do. You know, I got the favorite poets. I got E.E. E. Cummings, one of my absolute favorites. He's the guy that wrote, you know, Life's Not a Paragraph, and Death, I Think, is No Parenthesis. I love that. Walt Whitman, I Sing the Body Electric, Leaves of Grass, Walt Whitman, big, I love me some Walt Whitman. But I think today... I think for now, we have to consult William Bruce Rose Jr., who along with Saul Hudson and some others penned, I think, one of the great poems of the late 20th century. And I think these are words that we all need to hear right now. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's William Bruce Rose Jr. and Saul Hudson, sometimes known as Axel Rose and Slash. But right now, what we need in our lives, perhaps, is just a little GNR. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, the province holding a tech briefing uh, as we speak, a technical briefing on an update on the vaccination vaccination rollout plan. I uh, can't report that to you. It is under embargo. I'm going to get uh, get in trouble if I tell you the details. So coming up at 1 o'clock today, we have the DOFO show with uh, details on the vaccination rollout plan. Uh, General Hillier will be there and also uh, Marilee Fullerton with a rare appearance at the podium, Dr. Fullerton, of course, responsible for long-term care. So there will be an update on the vaccination rollout and can we get everybody in long-term care vaccinated? And then the next question is, is wait a second, what about seniors' residences that don't qualify as LTC and why don't they get vaccinated? And what about the frontline physicians in rural areas and they can't get vaccinated? And you see, now all of a sudden, let me just check my pulse. Oh, doctor, I need a little GNR. Thank you. All, right. All, right. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, so you, you likely know this by now that Pfizer 
is trying to double up its uh, vaccine production in Belgium. And as a result of that, they are now be just giving us chocolates, Belgian chocolates, instead of vaccines in the meantime. So here, have a chocolate, but no vaccine for you. So Pfizer says that it is uh, reducing temporarily, nobody panic, temporarily reducing the amount of doses that are coming to Canada. Pfizer says our country's not the only one. And it's working closely with governments on allocation of doses. Justin Trudeau this morning speaking outside the Cozy Cottage in Ottawa, talking about the momentary delay. This is a a longer bit of of what he had to say about the delay. And just saying, listen, we knew this was going to happen. I want you to hear this, and especially the part right at the end. We... uh always knew that uh, in manufacturing uh, global vaccines at the scale that is going to be uh, needed to end this pandemic, there were going to be challenges for certain companies in uh, certain situations, which is one of the reasons why we made took extra care to sign more contracts with more potential vaccine makers than most of our allies and indeed have secured more doses per person than any other country uh, because we knew there would be challenges. But uh, even with the announced delays by Pfizer, uh, we are confident we're remaining on track to receive all the promised doses we had signed for by the end of Q1, uh, and indeed that all Canadians will be able to be vaccinated uh, by September 2021. That is Justin Trudeau this morning in a press conference outside the Cozy Cottage in Ottawa, that key part at the end, anybody who wants the vaccine, the vast majority of Canadians, if you want it, you can get it by the end of September. No real change there on that overall horizon of the fall. And that has really been fairly uh, constant. And, and what the Liberals are clearly hoping is that these ups and downs that we will experience, and, and frankly, there's just no way around it. We knew that this was going to happen, that there was going to be problems with uh, the amount of vaccine, how fast we get it, and there's going to be a lot of questions about it. And I think there are very, very good questions about, well, wait a second, other countries are getting their shipments a little faster and the throttle down isn't impacting Europe as much as Canada. So there are these questions to be asked, but as long as the horizon has not changed, I'm not sure what that changes for the majority of Canadians, certainly for those that are waiting for the vaccine right now, right here, right now, like in LTCs, that is a big, big issue. And we'll continue to be. A couple other things that the Prime Minister uh, was pressed on. He was pressed on why European countries uh, are possibly getting more doses, uh, a a ramp back up faster than Canada. Uh, The Prime Minister said that there are stories around the world. Every every country has its own story. That he had spoken with the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who had told him that in Germany, the press there was saying, well, how come you're not as fast as Canada. That's what he held up as an example. And he was also pressed on why personally he is not involved in getting on the phone and lobbying, like call up the head of Pfizer. Yo, JT here, wondering if you're interested in in some socks and some beaver tails. I can send that right over. Ketchup chips, you got it. I'm I'm head, it's on its way. What's it going to take? I continue to be puzzled. Uh, the slowdown in vaccine 
of course, means Ontario will increase the interval between the two shots needed to maximize the protection provided by the vaccine from the company recommended 21 days up to 42 days. That's an ongoing controversy all around the world. How much can you stretch that two-shot thing out by? And remember what you heard from the Prime Minister there is that, you know, we've... We've we've got orders with every single company. You know, Bob's making his vaccine in the tub in Newmarket, and we giving him a billion dollars to that guy. And just in case that comes through, you never know. You got to put the money on all the horses. And and the question is, okay, well, that's all well and good, but where is the approval of all the other vaccines? We're stalled on that, and we're still waiting for Health Canada to come through on a bunch of these other vaccines so that we can actually get those going because. They're not here yet, and so we're betting on that coming. Now, the trickle-down is very key. I want you to hear this. This is from uh, Chief Matthew Pegg, who is in charge of the emergency services in Toronto and is handling the vaccine rollout. And yesterday, I mean, I felt for the city of Toronto. They had this big, you know, dog and pony show. Come on through. Here's the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. We're going to do the vaccine clinics here. Over here is where people will be getting this, and this is where we'll we'll have cotton swabs over there and everything. And, and then within a couple of hours of doing that, it, here's what Matthew Pegg had to say. We have now been advised by the province that we will only be able to operate this proof-of-concept clinic for an initial five days due to the lack of availability of COVID-19 vaccine. Well, no, that doesn't seem right. We just we just saw the thing. We just looked at it, and it's got to shut down in five days. But that's what's happening because we're going to get this throttled down in the vaccine. So hold on to your hat and just check that pulse one more time because what I'm telling you is that this is going to be the dominant thing in the news now in the next little while. This is what you're going to hear more and more about. Where is it? Where is it? Why don't we have it? Who's next? Who's next? And really, what's the doctor really ordering for us? We just need a little GNR in our veins, and it'll be all right. Coincidence on Sunday, Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Federal Conservative Party, made a bit of a splash with a statement saying that the far right has no place in the Conservative Party. Then, this morning, Press Progress, a website funded by the Broadbent Institute, so a left-leaning website, published details of a donation from a known white supremacist to Derek Sloan, the controversial social conservative and former leadership candidate who sits in the conservative caucus. And Aaron O'Toole has now indicated that he wants to have Mr. Sloan removed from the conservative caucus. The white supremacist in white supremacist, pardon me, in question, Paul Frum, who O'Toole called a well-known white supremacist, and it turns out that Frum had donated $131 to Sloan's conservative leadership bid. However, that money had gone through actually the conservative party itself, which then took a percentage of it and then on past that donation to Derek Sloan's campaign. Here's David Aiken, Global's chief political correspondent, with more on how the party handled it all. 
the party didn't raise any red flags. And then Sloan last night said, uh, well, the party even issued him a ballot. It, it, I mean, he's a member of the party, and he voted in the uh, the election. We don't know who he voted for. One can assume it was Sloan. So that's Sloan's side of the story. That is David Aiken. Quote, you better believe I'm fighting this. This is a straight setup, Mr. Sloan has said in a statement to the Globe and Mail. Uh, Derek Sloan, by way of background, has attracted a lot of criticism, criticism even within his own party for things like, for example, voting against a bill that would ban conversion therapy, and last year questioning the motives of Canada's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Theresa Tam, suggesting that perhaps she might have, have the interests of China ahead of the interests of Canada, racist trope that has it is old as time itself and is the sort of thing that was behind the imprisonment of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War. But nevertheless, I think there are questions to be asked about what the Conservative Party knew about it, whether or not this is, as Mr. Sloan says, a quote-unquote straight setup. A lot of questions here to ask and Help me to talk about it. I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Shri Paradkar, who's a Toronto Star columnist. And Shri, regardless what you think about Mr. Sloan and his views, what do you think of what the Conservative Party is doing here? I have a couple of things. One is that does Derek Sloan deserve to be out of the Conservative Party? And I would say long before this, yes, he, he does. The second question is, is this the right reason to take him, to to throw him out of the party? And there, I think the argument might fall apart because it's, you know, as as to Derek Sloan's point, and I hate to sort of agree with anything he says, but if he's had $130,000 um, in donations and the Conservative Party itself did not raise any red flags with uh, Paul Trump's donation, then then, okay, he didn't know. Uh, a bigger question is not whether he knew about Paul Trump's donation. It is a reflection question on what about him attracts neo-Nazis and open supremacists? How is he comfortable with that? What is he saying or what is he doing that is attracting that kind of uh, money from those sources? So to me, that is the bigger question um, and not whether, you know, it whether what is what are Erin O'Toole's motivations here? Perhaps Erin O'Toole simply, you know, sees this as an excuse to get rid of the man. It, it certainly does have that look. I mean, it's clear that Mr. O'Toole is concerned about what Mr. Sloan represents if he is within the tent of the party. And already we have seen the liberals continuing to make this point that the conservatives, you know, contain this social conservative element, and they try and link that to Trumpism and, you know, even what happened in Capitol Hill. So I, let me ask you this question. Do, do you think that the conservative party can even ever form government if they have somebody like Derek Sloan within the party tent? Uh, yes. I mean, yes, because there is that, uh, there is definitely an appetite for that kind of rhetoric in Canada, just as there is in the U.S. I, you know, you, you mentioned how Erin O'Toole feels there is no, no space for that kind of uh, person in the Conservative Party. But my bigger question is, what does Erin O'Toole stand for? Because when he 
when he talks about take Canada back, I understand his need to distance himself from a Trump kind of white supremacy, especially given the attack on democracy on January the 6th at the Capitol with the insurrection. But what does take Canada back mean? And how can he escape or pretend that it doesn't have any MAGA overtones to it? So I think far bigger than it, it seems to me like he's just, you know, it's a it's a superficial checkbox move to take away the most rabid or the most the loudest person in the party. But you have, you know, the party has such close ties to the far right rebel media, for instance. Um, how how does he reconcile that? So, so he just taking the act of taking Derek Sloan out or keeping him in, to my mind, does not change the appeal of this party in its current state. I think it needs a far bigger, um, not autopsy is not the right word, but a far bigger analysis of what it stands for. So that saying that the far right has no place and then a few days later, you know, saying, well, wait a minute, here we have somebody who was clearly a member of the far right donating to one of our leadership candidates and then attempting to remove that person. It looks like it's unclear at this point, but I'm seeing reporting right now that suggests that there is perhaps a majority of members within the Conservative Party that agree with O'Toole's stance, so it may happen. But that that, to your mind, doesn't really change anything? Do you think it'll change the minds of Canadians, that sort of middle Canadian, that, that mushy middle that we talk about a lot of times that might be really frightened by the Conservatives if they felt that that was an element of the party? If they did, then it's a, it's a cosmetic change. So if people are really afraid of that element of the Conservative Party, then taking Derek Sloan does not get rid of that element. Uh, you know, it, it is... I, I think it's a far more existential question for the conservatives and, and truly for all political parties, but the conservatives, because if they traditionally stand for let's keep things the way they are, because, you know, we are conservative, or then the more radical wing says, no, let's go back to this usually mythical time in the past where things were really great. Well, neither of them work for Canada today, because in either the mythical past or in current days, Things are, not, things are really not great for a lot of people who live on this land. So, so I think the conservatives will have to ask themselves what they really stand for. Do they, you know, is it just economic conservatism? Is it more, um, you know, fully 100% capitalism? And how will they deal with the tensions between capitalism and social justice? Does social justice have any place at all in their in their party platform more than just simply saying, oh, we don't agree with uh, this far-right rhetoric, but they're not really doing anything to address it other than something as cosmetic as getting rid of Derek Sloan. You know, when you posed, uh, speaking, by the way, with uh, Shri Parad Karhuse, columnist with the Toronto Star, when, when you sort of ran through that uh, very great qu- uh, list of questions there, I, I was just sort of immediately struck by, is there just no place for the red Tory? anymore the 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 fiscal conservative and the and the social progressive and and it seems that Aaron O'Toole is trying to to cast himself as that but you know can he rid his party of uh of a baggage that says that's not what they're what they are can they afford it and i think that would that would take a um, hell a lot of principle and moral courage to be 
to be able to walk away from a whole host of voters who are who who are thirsting for that vision much as that vision may not be grounded in reality it will take a lot of principle to walk away from that because they're there they're ready to be exploited they are ready to live in this parallel reality that has come through qanon conspiracies and the like and how and now what we essentially have to do is to reject them uh because we're not going to relitigate the meaning of canada the meaning of immigration the meaning of equality and liberty for all this is already set so now you have vast numbers of people who don't believe in any of that who believe that equality for all means um less for themselves um so i think it's a bigger moral question at this moment rather than just a superficial political one shri always great to have you on and you have your perspective thank you so much thank you for having me alan that is shri pradkar who is a toronto star columnist Hey, tennis anyone? It seems like some professional tennis players have completely double faulted down under. Two more Australian Open tennis players have tested positive for COVID-19 after arriving in Melbourne. This comes after a player was believed to have tested positive on Sunday amid growing controversies over the event being held at all. Uh, One more quote-unquote non-playing participant also has covid Uh, And that brings the overall total link to the Open to seven, including a flight attendant. 1,200 people apparently have flown in for the tournament, which begins February the 8th. And world number one player Novak Djokovic has lobbied authorities down under to relax quarantine rules for players, including making the periods shorter. And that suggestion has earned him criticism from an Australian player who tweeted out, Djokovic is a tool. Double fault. A lot of it raises questions about sports in the time of COVID. And I know we don't have a whole lot to watch on television anymore. I think a lot of us are thrilled that there is some sports to watch. But there is really kind of a double standard out there. There's, you know, teams going from here to there, crossing boundaries, moving around in ways that the rest of us absolutely do not. And Should we allow that to happen? Let's talk about that with Scott Stinson, who's a national sports columnist with Post Media News and an all-around good guy. Scott, how are you? I'm good, Alan. How are you doing? I'm good. You feel a little guilty watching sports at all? (laughs) Uh, You know, I think I felt it a little... It seemed a little weirder when they first came back in the spring, um, just because... It, it, it was kind of at a time where no one really knew where we were going with this thing. There was the the promise of the vaccine was months, possibly years off at that that point. Um, they were going back in some cases. You know, the NBA was setting up shop in Orlando last spring when Florida was raging with the coronavirus, so that seemed weird. But it it feels a little different to me this time around, um, partly because. I just think there's kind of a, an acknowledgement that that these businesses exist and these leagues exist and, and they managed to do this the first time around without any real crisis, so they're trying again this time. It, it is a little different as well because they're not doing the bubbles this time. But to get back to your opening about the Australian Open, 
Like that is the difference. That one is going to be a bubble. So it does feel to me like they, at least in that particular instance, know what they're doing. They're detecting some positive cases. They'll probably be able to pull off that event without any real problem. And yet you have um, Mr. Djokovic obviously has uh, run afoul of uh, some of the issues before. What was that? He held his own personal tournament. And was that? He did. And, you know, so, so he has, you know, been a lightning rod for this kind of criticism before. So it's not new. But, but I, I guess, doesn't it raise a, a question about, you know, even in a bubble or out of a bubble? I mean, all of the support staff and everybody around, I mean, we're, we're sort of forcing people to at least increase their risk to some to some point so that the rest of us can watch sports. That's true. And and certainly, you know, I guess I would say the, the situations are really different if you're looking at what's happening in Australia and what's happening here. Um, Australia, as you know, completely squashed the virus. You know, they, they have had something like 40 deaths per million over the course of the pandemic and Canada's at like 500 and something per million. So, you know, and they, they basically have eliminated it uh, as of now. So I could see why an Australian person was fairly leery of let's open up the airports and have all these people from all over the world coming from countries that have not eliminated the virus coming to Australia. But they are also trying, that's what they're doing a quarantine for and doing the tests upon arrival to eliminate, you know, to reduce the risk those people will provide, uh, end up providing to the general public in Australia. The, the situation here is, to, to your point of like, you're, you're reducing, you're increasing the risk of whether it's the equipment staff guy or the person who is holding the door at the arena, like all those people are coming into contact with players and staff and coaches in a way that obviously isn't happening anywhere else in, in the province of Ontario and, and to a similar extent in Quebec as well, just to pick two examples. So that part is like, there's no getting around it. There's a double standard happening. Um, you community hockey, house league hockey, those kind of things are shut down, probably won't return this year. And yet we're allowing the pros to do essentially the same thing, but on a much grander scale. So I can get, uh, why there would be concerns that, that we're allowing this to take place. I don't really know what the justification it, it, of it is other than, well, look, they can actually do it relatively safely because there's a small enough people, a small uh, amount of people involved and they've got resources behind it to do frequent testing and, and all that stuff. So we might as well let them do it. I got to assume part of the rationale too, Alan, is that, well, at least gives us something to put on TV when they're making us all stay at home anyway. So I, I don't, that part always strikes me as a little grim. Like, is that really why they're allowing this to happen? But I kind of think that's part. Of it. Yeah. I'm no, no, speaking with Scott Stinson, who is uh, a writer with uh, Post Media with the National Post. Uh, and perhaps I, I'm just bitter because uh, Global doesn't actually own a sports network. <laughs> Maybe maybe I'd be maybe I'd be welcoming it with more open arms if I knew it was paying my salary. I mean, look, that's the reality. Is there's a couple of big telecommunications companies that not only own the sports networks but own the teams. You know, so they've got all sorts of irons in this fire, and they're happy to have whether it's the Maple Leafs or the Raptors uh, back in in action and on their networks and. And, you know, again, 
it's at least it's not the replay of the Toronto Raptors title run from 2019 again, which we all, of course, live through in the spring. So, hey, at least they're new games this time. <laughs> um, uh, hey, you know, I just ju- jumped back on the uh, Bills bandwagon. I uh, just got back on board. I got off just uh, shortly after uh, Jim Kelly retired. So it's been a while. So now I'm back on. Uh, can you just tell me, just, for, you know, for those of us, uh, the listeners out there, maybe not following football uh, and think, well, maybe I just need to get on board this uh, bandwagon as well. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there any point or am I just going to have my dreams crushed by KC? No, you know, Alan, I'm much like you. I wrote about this actually last week that I was a I was a Bills fan in my youth and then eventually kind of was like a lapsed Catholic when it became to my Bills fandom. I just I lost interest over all the many years of losing and and now they're good again and they're fun to watch and um I think there's a real, you know, I I I believe the Kansas City Chiefs have to be considered the favorite especially if Patrick Mahomes plays, although that is uh, somewhat in doubt. But look, the Bills are, uh, if there's any team out there that looks like they could kind of go toe-to-toe in terms of scoring points and throwing the ball downfield and doing fun things, I, I think the Buffalo Bills are, are definitely a contender in that regard. So I, I think the way to look at it, Alan, is, look, they got to the AFC Championship game. Who would have thunk it? We're playing with house money now. Uh, hopefully it's a fun game on Sunday. And if not, well, it was a good season had by all. Scott, that's glass, glass half full and half empty all at the same time, Scott. That's nice. That's a skill. Uh, you know, I'm trying to help out. <laughs> Scott Stinson, uh, National Sports Columnist with Post Media. Always great to have you on, Scott. You take care. Thanks. You as well. Well, it'll be interesting to watch uh, some football on the weekend, you know, watch a little sports. And listen, I don't, you know, I don't think uh, if you take away from our conversation that I'm arguing against uh, professional sports, I, I'm not. And I think I'd get run off the radio if if I was. I just think that there, we have to ask ourselves some some hard questions. And, you know, when you see the, the fans, you know, the limited number of fans at those NFL games, and I understand that's, in, you know, the United States, a different sort of situation than here. But nevertheless, you're like, hey, that doesn't seem right. That seems a bit, it seems a bit weird. I, you know, I, I can't, can't help it when you think about that. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter radio program weekdays starting at noon.